Welcome to Catch the Fire Boulder, where we're more than a church. We're family. Today's message is a continuation of the prophetic training series brought to you by Lane Reading. To find out more information about this podcast or other resources, please go to ctfboulder.com. Today, we are starting um, what we're calling um, foundation level, what is it? Four, two, three, yeah, four. And this is the whole thing on what I mentioned about um, an aspect called called, but not chosen. And so what I want to do tonight is lay the foundation for what this means. I think by now, those of you have heard me, um, although this is geared towards the prophetic, it's not just about the prophetic, and you'll see that very clearly tonight, and then we'll talk about what this means for the prophetic, but we need to see some things what this means. Um, And what do I mean by using this language as a conversation starter, okay? Um, The first thing we're going to look at is the parable of the wedding, okay? And we'll start, before we get to this parable about the wedding, we'll start with showing that Jesus is called the bridegroom, okay? Remember, we've just spoken about how God divorced Israel, remember? And now all of a sudden, something happens and we get this marriage language again. And there's a reason for that. And hopefully we'll get into it a little bit. So, going to the slide, Jesus is the groom for, I hear they may be showing it on the live stream. Um, Matthew 9, 14 through 15, it's repeated in Mark 2, 19 through 20, as well as Luke 5, 34, through 35, I've got 34 34, it should be 35. But this same parable shows up in all three of the Gospels, or this section. It says, Then the, sorry, not the parable, this statement. Then the disciples of John came to him, Jesus, saying, Why do the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Doesn't that sound religious? I mean, oh, you're not fasting. Now, don't. You know, those of you who don't know me, I can be a little cheeky because I'm trying to make a point. It's not that I'm saying anything about fasting, but isn't it interesting that when people are going to criticize something, what they pick on? As we've discussed, there is no biblical calling to be a critic. I've yet to find one. Now, I'm not saying we don't need to judge, but it's not each other. If we have something against someone, what does scripture say? Take the log out of your own eye, and we've told, do that gently. You know, I, otherwise you're going to use the same sledgehammer that made you blind getting it out on somebody else. There's things that God wants us to follow. But it, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? We miss that statement, I think, in our culture. What Jesus was saying is, Jews, you remember God, Yahweh, 
divorced Israel. My disciples aren't fasting because they're with the bridegroom. What did he just say about himself? I love these things out there where people say Jesus never claimed to be God. He might not have used those words exactly, but he didn't need to because he was talking to Hebrews. And Hebrews understood what this meant. He was saying, I'm God Almighty coming back to get married. So, he's the bridegroom. John 2, 1 through 11 This is Jesus' first miracle. What was it? Yeah, he didn't turn wine into water. (laughs) As a lot of people want to say. He turned water into wine. Why? Because in their culture, that was a very significant thing for a wedding. And why does he do this? Because his mama said, not... We don't read that it was, oh my goodness, the Spirit of God descends and tells him. He gets pressed into service because of his mother. (laughs) Why do I bring that up? Because there is an element of the people in our life have a right to pull on us at times. And we must define those people carefully. She's the same one when at 12, he stays back in the temple and she figures out three days later, not because she's a bad mom, because they traveled in companies. And especially with boys, you know, if there wasn't food, they probably wouldn't come home for days. At least that was my childhood, I think, at times. But you hear my heart in what I'm saying and she realizes he's not with them. And he goes back and she goes like a good Jewish mama, what do you think you're doing? And he goes, I'm doing my father's business. She doesn't attack him. Come on, she's the one that got so close to God, she got pregnant out of wedlock. <laughs> she knew something was different. But that was her boy. And this was a wedding, and he was going to fix it. Okay. His first miracle was at a wedding. It's symbolic. It's important. Remember, things are recorded in Scripture for a reason. John 3.29, John the Baptist calls Jesus the bridegroom. John 3.29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly. Okay. I'll, I'll start over. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John the Baptist, who we were told, was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, says, this is the bridegroom, and I'm his friend. Okay, so we've kind of settled it. There's a lot more of the scriptures. But we won't go into those. 
Okay, now we're going to look at the wedding, and I'm going to read a chunk of scripture because it's important. Um, and some of the things I'm going to say, I want to give credit to Barbara and Beth and somebody Beth, a video Beth sent me from um, Brett McCracken, who's one of the leaders at a church in Southern California, Southlands. If you want the link to what he has to say on this, let me know and I'll send it to you. It's, it's excellent. He lays this out a lot better than I have time for. That's not my point. My point is something we're going to get to, but there's some things that I want to bring out. So let's start. Matthew 22, 1 through 7, and then we'll finish up 8 through 14 on the next slide. It says, sorry? The only thing I need you to slow down is when you say the scripture, I just need to write it down. Okay. Matthew 22, 1 through 7, and then after the slide we'll get to 8 through 14. And it's this parable. It says, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they did not come. Now, this is a king and this is a wedding feast. And as this gentleman, Brett McCracken said, the, the most recent royal wedding um, I forget the British couple now in London. Um, they got married. They estimate one and a half billion people watched that live. 600 people were invited. But one and a half billion people watched it. And his point is, to get invited to a wedding and a wedding of that kind of stature is not something you turn down lightly. These people went, no, I won't come. And he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. In other words, they kept doing what they were doing. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them, the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their cities. One, the king is symbolic, obviously, of God. Two, the servants were the prophets he'd sent. And three, it was the Jewish cities that he had destroyed, as we've read before. So Jesus, in parable form, is recounting what had gone on. But in modern times, okay, he's using a wedding analogy. And Brett McCracken brings out how this ties in with all the other parables. There's a lot of tie-ins that we just don't have time for today. Let's move on to Matthew 22, 8 through 14, the second section. Because remember, the whole goal of this is called, but not chosen. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite the wedding feast, sorry, and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. 
And those servants went out into the road and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. I think that gives me hope, otherwise I probably wouldn't be here, right? Any of us want to claim we're on the good side? Okay. Just checking I was in the right place. No. Do you know how, do you know, do you see the heart of God? I jokingly say, if you ever find a perfect church, it's obviously one not invited to the wedding feast. <laughs> but you see the heart of God. When the Jewish nation refused, God didn't stop. He invited everyone. But when the king came in and looked at the guests, he saw a person who had no wedding garments. Now, wait a minute. You just invited the people off the street and you're noticing one person who doesn't have a wedding garment? They were speechless. That person, meaning they, that person was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind them hand and foot and cast them into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called but few are chosen. Now, what most of us don't know, and I didn't know, because we don't have a wedding culture like this. If you invited people to a wedding in the Old Testament, the, you know, the groom or the, the, the bride's parents, whoever was paying, those who were invited who could not afford to dress appropriately would be provided clothing. Everybody invited was given clothing by the king. So now it takes on a, it's not like, you know, God the Father is just looking through the crowd of people not dressed properly and going, why don't you dress properly? What it tells us is somebody came to the wedding and refused the clothing. Do you see the judgment upon it? <laughs> to be bound and cast into outer darkness? We could follow that where those phrases are used in the New Testament. Let's just say it's not a place we want to visit. <laughs> Especially if you like cooler temperatures. <laughs> the heart of this is that God is inviting us and he wants to clothe us. Huh. Who was the first group of people he clothed? Adam and Eve. This is why I say often, guys, when we find ourselves in places of sin or needing to repent, putting, covering ourselves like Adam and Eve did with leaves, things we can, will not help us. It's not about the sin. God is saying, I've made a way. Take what I've given you so we can come back together. Don't let that stand in the way. I've already taken care of that. It's brutal. (laughs) 
And there are multiple aspects around that that we'll, we'll talk about. But in this context, Jesus says, many are called, few are chosen. Who is he talking to? The Jews? No. He was talking to the people that came and showed up at the wedding. They were called. But they weren't chosen. Why? Because they refused to put on the garments. Revelations, we could do a whole thing on where it says, come to me and buy from me pure gold. Buy from me garments of white. Is that God saying he's in the fashion industry? No, it's symbolic language. He's saying, I have this. Do we have to go and, how do we buy stuff from God? Again, it's symbolic language. Now, I want to get into something that Barbara helped me understand. The next slide is called filthy rags because we're dealing with clothing. Ezekiel 36, 16 through 17. It says, Ezekiel 36, 16 through 17. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. Literally what that says, Israel is like a used tampon to me. Literally, that's what it means in our language. God used an image that we sanitize because you don't talk about that in church. Now, Barbara helped me with this and she said at one point, she said to God, really, you use an image? You made me, you made me have a period and you say this now. Obviously, it's in the context of judging Israel. And she said, God spoke to her. She realized the reason he was judging Israel was because, not because she had a period, was that she kept having a period. Why do women have periods? Because they're not pregnant. Well, God was saying, you have refused to become intimate with me and get pregnant. And therefore, your used tampons are a stench in my nostrils. Remember I've said all of this is about an invitation into the presence of God. God isn't Jehovah Google. He may give us information and show us things, but it's because he's our father. He's our God. He loves us. He wants, he even said to the Pharisees and Sadducees, you know the word, you think you do, but you don't because the word leads to me. Therefore, you don't know it. They could repeat it verbatim. But they weren't pregnant. Intimacy leads to pregnancy. Birds and bees, one or two. <laughs> Do you see the connection here? So when God says to this guy or girl in the parable, why aren't you dressed appropriately? They were going, I'm going to do it my way. I'm here. 
It's like when you tell a kid, sit down, and they're sitting, but you know inside they're standing. <laughs> it's like, turn around, and it's that that God's after in us. This is why I think later on, you know, Jesus says to a group, he says, you can cast out demons, heal the sick in my name, but I'll tell you to get away from me because I never knew you. That's the same word where it says, I knew Mary. I'm not saying God comes and has sex. That's, please don't hear that. But I'm saying it's that level of intimacy. It's deeper than that. I don't, but that's the language God uses to get our understanding of how he feels towards us. So there's this issue of clothing that is so important. Why? Because he wants us at the wedding. But he wants us appropriately at the wedding. I mean, really, ladies, you get up to the altar, or gentlemen, you get up to the altar since this is about Jesus, and your bride walks down the aisle, you know, in a tank top and shorts, and goes, I didn't like the dress, and let's just get this over so I can get to the mansion. You know, I want to enjoy the benefits of what I have to put up with. That's what this is about. I mean, hopefully, either side of, you know, if you're the bride and your groom does that, you'd go, yeah, let's rethink that. No, no, we're going to pause right here. <laughs> That's what God is saying. Some people come to him, but they're not coming to him. That's why in John 6, 66, he decides to test everyone. And he says one of the most vulgar things you can to a Jew. Eat my flesh, drink my blood, or I have nothing to do with me. No context. None. I mean, you know, there was eating pigs and unclean animals was bad. Now you're talking cannibalism? <laughs> He gave no context. You've heard me talk about how every now and then God likes to offend us. And what does it say? All of them turn around and walk away except the 12. And he goes, aren't you guys going to leave too? <laughs> and Peter kind of goes, well, no, not really. Um, you have the words of life. And my quote is, and we have no idea what they are, but here is a... Uh, Really? Eat your flesh and your blood? Do you really mean that? Like, come on, give us nuance, give us something. This is partly why at times God may feel offensive because he's trying to show us where we're not wearing the right clothing. Okay? Okay. Um, I think I've said enough there. Let's move on. Okay, now let's get into many are called and few are chosen, but I want to look at the ultimate expression of this, and that is in Revelation 17, 14. Revelation 17, 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord and the King of kings. And those who are with him are called 
and chosen and faithful. Same words. He has a group that are called, chosen, and faithful. I don't know if some of you remember Sheila talk on a three-legged stool using some different words, but it's the same thing. If we want to be a part of what Jesus is doing, he's called us. We have to be choosable by wearing the garments, and we have to be faithful. Now, that is not saying, as I made fun earlier intentionally, be religious, beat ourselves. God knows we're human. He's not looking for perfect. You know, most of us still struggle with the fact that we've lost our naivete, our innocence. Do you know that doesn't impress God? If it did, he'd restore it. What did God do? He came in, said, you are holy. Innocence is not the same as holiness. Holiness is a choice and nobody can take it away from you. Innocence can be stolen. And so for those of you and for those you help, help them understand that. There is a sense of loss when we lose innocence, especially if it's taken from us violently. And there is no excuse for that, but Jesus' cross and his blood is enough. That doesn't mean we don't grieve. doesn't mean it doesn't take time. doesn't mean you can't be called, chosen, and faithful. Clearly, Jesus picked 12. He even said, one of you is a devil. He didn't know which one until the end, because, I mean, Peter denied. <laughs> so it's not about being perfect. Okay, take that off, please. I keep, I, so the word called, this is what it means. Someone whose participation or presence has been officially requested for something, especially a request of which refusal is not an option. And if you remember some of the previous teachings, this came out and I said, this is going to have very important meaning. And I'm going to tell you the next two words, and then we're going to go where I rewrite the scripture using these definitions so we get an understanding. The word chosen, selected by someone in preference over another. Faithful, characterized by steadfast affection or allegiance to someone or something. Do you realize that faithfulness ties these two passages together? Called, chosen, and faithful. In that parable, many are called, few are chosen. Why? Because the person who came wasn't faithful to put on the clothing that was provided. They wanted it as, I was going to say Liberace. It wasn't Liberace. He was saying, my way Frank Sinatra, thank you. Where did I get Liberace? Frank Sinatra. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, we're talking like <laughs> opposite ends of the spectrum there. But do you hear the heart of that? So 
Let's go to my rewrite of Revelation 17:14. This is how I would butcher it. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those with him have been officially requested in such a way they cannot refuse. And he selected them, preferring them over others because of their ongoing steadfast affection and allegiance to him as king and to his kingdom. That gets a little personal, doesn't it? Why do you think Peter goes, Jesus, you just tell us to drink your blood and eat your flesh and we're not going to go anywhere. You have the words of life, but <laughs> that's what the, they had experienced something that had gripped them, that was giving life. They had seen Jesus speak to the woman and say, get away from me, dog. And she goes, I'll eat the scraps of your table. They're good enough. And Jesus goes, I've never seen such faith in all Israel. What? How was that to do with faith? And we've spoken about these things. They felt pressed into something. But even though the 12 were pressed, called, it didn't predestine them. Otherwise, Judas would not have been filled with the devil and done what he did. It never takes away our free will. God is inviting us. Could you imagine what would have happened if Pharaoh had softened his heart? Egypt could have participated in the freedom of Israel and the benefits of what God had. Okay, how much time do we have? We've got some time. So let's, let's go into, so do you, before I go, the, do you get where I'm going? This is about us. This isn't just about the prophetic. This is about all of us. I don't care if you're an apostle, a prophet, uh, you know, gifted to be an administrator, a healer, a street. So I, this is who we are called to be. I think this is partly why Jesus in another parable says it is difficult for the wealthy to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not that wealthy people can't. But really his? <laughs> okay. And clearly we are. But he's asking us to put on his garments and do his works. We read a while back that Garmin saw the righteous acts that he has for us. Again, that doesn't mean we're saved by works. But that would be me like saying, I'm a runner and I've never run in my life. Or I haven't run in 20 years. I could, it would be better say I used to run. You can use I'm a believer as a noun, but if you're not, believing and working through things are you really a believer 
Okay, so the biblical meaning of the word called and how it's used. So this word in Greek is kletos. Okay, that's what that word called. And we, we read it's somebody whose participation and presence has been requested in such a way you can't refuse. Now, can you? Of course you can. We've seen, but it, it's, it's something that moves on you. And if you give yourself to it, so where else is this word used and how? Twice it's used, Paul uses it. And to say, I was called to be an apostle. So Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Notice he doesn't say first an apostle, a servant. That's a doulos. That's a servant who gets set free. You've served your term, you can go. And they go, no, I don't want to leave. And so they would take them and put a thing, you know, like a nail through the, their ear on the door. That's a willing, he's going I am a willing slave of Christ. Called to be an apostle. Set apart for the gospel of God. Doesn't that sound religious? Now, hear me. Because in Acts we see they get his stinky, sweaty rags while he's making tents to go put on the sick. It's like, uh, excuse me, uh, let's just get those disinfected. Thank you very much. And... I'll take Peter's shadow. You can keep your stinky rag. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle. He's saying, I was pressed into this. Okay. My rewrite, Paul, whose participation was officially requested in such a way, he couldn't refuse to be an apostle. Set apart for the gospel of God. Where in your life do you feel this happening? Where do you feel called? Yes, ultimately to God, but where do you... Where do you come alive? Where do you feel his life? Next, twice it's used of we're all called to be saints. <laughs> it was nice when it was just apostles, right? Well, I'm not one of those, so, you know, it's optional for me. Romans 1, 7a. To those in Rome who are to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. But it was just the Romans, right? Only the Roman Christians were loved by God and called to be saints. I've heard people say that, trying to justify their way out of this, but no. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So just in case you thought I was making it up. Somebody must have said something to the Corinthians, like really it's just the Romans, and I'm joking of course, but he clarifies it. 
We are called to be saints. We are invited into his presence in such a way it makes it difficult to refuse. My rewrite of Romans 1, 7, 8, to, those, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and officially requested in such a way they couldn't refuse to be saints. Called ones, which we could get into as a whole other thing in scripture that our English translation really doesn't bring out very well. Okay, and last but not least, the word called is used twice for nations and Jews and Greeks. Romans 1, 5 through 6. Romans 1, 5 through 6. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. If we don't have the wedding and all of this is the background, this can sound stern as I've heard it at times used. This is going, you're called to be the bride of Christ. You're called to be intimate with God Almighty and be pregnant. With his plans, with his purposes, with who he is. One Corinthians one twenty four, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. God has called the nations. I mean, He says, "I wish that everyone were saved." That's His heart. Is everyone saved? No. And it's not for us to judge. Our job is to learn how to be intimate and pregnant. (laughs) That imagery of being full of him. So, many are called few are chosen. In the generic sense, it's all of us. God has called us. But whether or not we make ourselves choosable determines whether or not we will wear what he has for us. When this comes to the prophetic, This is why we've been talking about the foundation, you know, of what Scripture says of all the groups in Scripture from, you know, in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, talks about the body of Christ. The ultimate goal is love. When the prophets come together, even the unbelievers listening will get saved because their their hearts will be exposed before God, not condemned. I mean, really? As I've said, telling somebody their sin, is that, 
Is that news, let alone good news? No. But when you, when you tell people how God sees them, and when you felt that from God, it touches something deep, and you want to believe it, but we fight it. And we don't know why. This is what God is asking the prophetic to do. Remember, the prophetic is partnering with God. In the church, it's encouragement, exhortation, comfort. There are guidelines around in the church, in, in typical meetings. Because God wants the prophetic to help people go into intimacy, to lay down their rags help remove things so they can see him more clearly, experience him more fully. This is why we spent time talking about, Scripture says, love your neighbor as yourself. So we had to start with ourselves. Why? Because otherwise we won't love our neighbor properly because we're not loving ourselves properly. There is a, a place where we find God pushing on us and speaking to us and calling us. And some of those for the prophetic, you get to a place where God starts talking about things that are beyond exhortation, edification, and comfort. It doesn't make it better. It doesn't make it worse. It just is. But it's different. And you enter into a place where you start moving in maybe signs or wonders or dark sayings and mysteries and in different things. And as a community of church, so to speak, especially the ones that acknowledge the Holy Spirit and the gifts they've realized and we've woken up to the fact that we need to create safe places for people to learn. You know, the joke is when your kid starts learning to walk and they fall down, you don't kick them in the closet going, you stupid failure. So the first time somebody tries to give a word or pray for someone, or I, you've heard me say, I remember um, John Wimber, who was known a lot for healing, said for the first two years that he prayed for people to get sick, people got worse. In fact, so much so that people would avoid him. And he said, so when you look at me now and want me to pray for you, I remember who I was back then, and I'm the same person. This has nothing to do with me. What God is asking is that we be ourselves in the midst of the supernatural, in the midst of these things, and not get caught up in games and everything, but that we move forward and that the whole heart of this is about the bridegroom and the bride, the church. How do we help the church move on? How do we continue to grow in this? There's lots of different ways God speaks. And where do you practice that safely? When people come up to me who are Democrats who have a word about somebody who's Republican, I go, okay, 
Would you interpret that the same way for this Republican as you would for Obama or Clinton? And people can go, and I, on the other side, I do the same thing. So would you interpret that the same way if it were George Bush and Trump? Why? Because if who the person is changes how we would interpret it, it's telling more about what we believe rather than what he is saying. Is that easy? No. How will we grow up? It's going to take relationship. It's going to take honesty. It's going to take, I think I'm hearing this, and we watch and see what happens, and we grow, and we learn. I didn't just, you know, so to speak, wake up in my gifting one day and God said, go break the droughts in California, and off I went. It, really, God, no confusion. Uh, so you're going to break the drought, <laughs> and I don't have to ask permission, but because I come from understanding authority and that Jesus values it incredibly highly, I go to the people that I'm in submission to out of relationship and go, this is what God is saying. I looked for a church where the epicenter of the drought was and said, can I come in under your covering? I don't want anything. And you've heard me guys say this. Why? Because I understand natural authority and Jesus said it mirrors spiritual authority. I have watched too many prophetic people be taken out. Elijah was one of them. One of the greatest victories on Mount Carmel. And by the end of the day, he was suicidal, saying, I'm the only one. And in the New Testament, Paul has to go, no, there were a hundred others. Why do you think that was such a revelation to Paul? Clearly he had felt that way a little bit. And God had used it to speak to him, going, Paul, you're not the only one. Build a team, build a team, build a team. To move in some of the deeper, that, that, into deeper levels, I don't know another way to say it at the moment, of the gifting of the prophetic, is one you have to be called. If you're not, and that's on your heart, go before God, but don't try to fake it, please. God may have something else for you that you're resisting that is far more important. Serious. It's about team. Not all our eyes, not all our ears, not all our feet. Give the greatest honor to the least amongst you. But if you are called into the prophetic and the teacher, because often the prophetic and the teacher are put together in the New Testament, because the same warnings about false teachers and prophets, about selfish gain, sensual desires, and all that kind of stuff, kind of sounding like a false prophet in the Old Testament who was hired to curse Israel, Balaam, is what God says about the false prophet. Getting it wrong doesn't make you false. Leading people astray does. 
Whether you're called into deeper levels or more levels of the prophetic, um, and somebody's pulling on me about intercession, yes, people who people who are called to deep levels of intercession typically have a gifting of the prophetic as well. Um, and God is marrying those two together at this point. And I don't know that, I mean, bringing them together more closely. Um, the point of this is that God is asking us to grow up in our gifting. This process is true no matter what that gifting is. But for the prophetic, which is where I come from, when you're called but not chosen, it's that place where we, f we see Jeremiah. And we may study it a lot more in detail. I'm not sure yet. But Jeremiah gets called by God. I called you before you were born. You were a prophet to the nation. And then the king goes to a prophetess who runs the wardrobe and gets a word from her. One, you don't see Jeremiah going, you stupid king, I curse you in the name of Yahweh because you didn't come to the anointed prophet. And unfortunately, I have seen people maybe not do it quite that way, but that's what they're doing. It's called jealousy, and it's ugly, and it's evil at that level of the prophetic. Nor do you see the prophetess going, well, it's about time you recognized me back here in the wardrobe. But that's how you can feel. Clearly, that wasn't the only word she'd, been given, she'd given because otherwise she wouldn't have been known as a prophetess. Whatever God was doing through her was obviously not captured for Scripture for whatever reason. God will call you and then in a sense put you on the shelf. And for the apostolic, that's brutal. He does it to them harshly. Why? Because it's not about us, it's about him. And it's about his bride. I remember I was probably 17. And I'd come home from a prayer meeting where God had moved powerfully. And I walked into the living room. And my father had punched my mother through a glass table. And there were shards sticking out of her and she was bleeding. And I thought she was dead. I punched him down the passageway. He fell, I put my hands around his throat and the last thing I remember thinking was, I'm going to kill you and I'll go to hell and I don't care. I woke up hours later, walking in the most dangerous parts of the city that I lived in, wanting somebody to kill me. It was a Saturday evening, I walked the whole night, I couldn't find a soul. So I walked to church I walked in the back, and as I walked in the back, God said to me, the woman over there said, she's dying of cancer. I want to heal her. As holy as I am, and I'm being very facetious, I walked up to her and literally did this, get healed, and sat down. The woman fell over and was instantly healed. I think it was like stage three something cancer. I forget. But as I sat down, the presence of God hit me and said, this is never about you. 
don't ever treat my bride that way. Why do I share that? Because it's real. It's life. I've told you I don't come from a functional family background. What I didn't tell you is before I got to church, I called my sister. Back then it was public phones. And I said, dad killed mom. I killed dad. You better call the police and the ambulance. My mother didn't die. She recovered. My father um, was in the hospital longer. And when he did recover, he, my dad was Australian. My mother was Scottish. He moved to Australia for almost a year. And there's other reasons for that. Um, how can God move so powerfully and heal somebody when I had basically thumbed my nose at him and told him, you can go to hell because he knew the depth of the pain I was in. He didn't judge me for that. But he wouldn't, even at that stage, can we mistreat his bride? He never yelled at me for what I did to my dad. He never took me to the woodshed for, but that I touched his bride inappropriately. This is the heart of God for us. And so when I see prophetic people and apostolic. I mean, that's why God would not let Moses go into the promised land because he struck the rock. He misrepresented God to his people. There is a place not of fear, but a place of sobriety. We are called and he wants to choose us. And he wants us to be faithful. Faithful doesn't mean we don't screw up. Faithful means we keep going back to him. If it did mean that, King David would never have made it to where he was. He was in some ways a worse king than Saul. He murdered his general so he could get his wife because he got her pregnant and he couldn't hide it. His one son rapes his stepsister and he does nothing about it and creates an absolute chaos in his kingdom. Absalom usurps his throne. And yet God says he was a man after my own heart. And I jokingly say, and a lot of other women's. (laughs) But that's the cynicism, but that's not. Has God treated you differently than that? Why have you felt his love and his correction? That's why we've spoken about it is so important for us to learn how to embrace the salvation of God. I had to learn. I remember when I got saved. It was probably a year after that experience that the Spirit of God sits me. Jesus was my friend and my Savior. Holy Spirit was my comforter and he was with me. I spoke in tongues two weeks before I got saved. 
I woke up speaking in a funny language that made me feel good because I had planned my suicide and so I kept putting it off. The heart of God is to draw us into him. I've had to let him heal me. When the Spirit of God came to me a year later and said, I want to introduce you to God the Father, I literally threw my Bible across the room and walked out. That word was a cuss word to me. The Spirit of God might as well cuss. That, that's, I never, a lot of my life I called my father by his last name, Mr. Eddie. I don't want to portray him as the most evil man on the planet. His life story that I came to understand was brutal as well. Doesn't excuse it, but it helps me understand and forgive. I actually got to lead him to the Lord. But I had to do a lot of work to get healing. Why? Because every prophetic word I had was tainted. When God said to Paul, I mean to Peter, kill and eat, kill and eat, kill and eat, you know? And he goes, no, I'm a good Jewish boy. I don't eat unclean animals. What did God say? Do not call unclean what I call clean. In other words, Peter, I've got a pair of lenses, glasses for you. You will now look through these through the rest of your life and interpret it through that way. That's what God has to do with us. As saints, in any of our callings, and also with the prophetic. He has to put different lenses on us at times so we can see more clearly the way he sees. And sometimes they're seasonal. Sometimes the, the lens of the Father is permanent in me. That's why I call God Dad. Our Father, I can say it, it doesn't feel like a cuss word anymore. You know? Literally, that felt like I was cussing. Our Father, which art in heaven, I know people are going, whoa, but that's why I call him dad, because I never called my earthly father that. That word had no emotional connotation. Where are you in your journey with him? Your life story not only doesn't excuse him, from working in your life and working through your life, but it's an invitation for him to do more. That's why he wants to come and move in us as well as through us. Our time is up. Let's pray. Dad, you are amazing. You are almighty God. You have both fathered and mothered me in ways that I could never have understood. For your mercy and your grace. And those in this room have experienced you as well. And you're calling us to put on your garments to not call and clean and unholy things 
you are showing us to do and to speak. I just ask that you would help us to open up to you more. Have your way with us. Have your way, Lord Jesus. We say yes to you. I ask that you lead us and guide us to all your ways, Dad. That your kingdom come and your will be done. In Jesus' name I ask. Thank you so much for tuning in with us today. If you would like to find out more about who we are, you can find that at ctfboulder.com. If you haven't already, please make sure to follow us on all of our other social media platforms. Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Spotify. We post different content on each platform, and we want you guys to stay as updated as possible. We have so much love for you guys. God bless.